0: Hello, welcome to Fictoplasm. This episode we're going to talk about a couple of things. The first is C.L. Moore and her novel and her story Black God's Kiss and others featuring Jaral Jiri. And then we're also going to talk about Dragons and Warrior Daughters, which is an anthology featuring Black God's Kiss um, alongside other authors of... um, Later, uh, alongside other later authors, including Diana Wynne Jones and Tana Lee, Our uh, Black God's Kiss was published in Weird Tales in 1934. Catherine Lucille Moore is well known for two characters, both of which were published in Weird Tales. The first one is Northwest Smith, and then Jerelle of Joray is the other one. They appear in sequence in my copy, which is an ebook. Any Epub. They are Black God's Kiss, Black God's Shadow, Jarel Meets Magic, The Dark Land, and Hell's Guard. First of all, the synopsis of Black God's Kiss. It begins in Media Res. The conquer Gulam has triumphed over the kingdom of Jari, and its last and fier- fiercest warrior is being brought before him as he sits on Jari's throne. This warrior is Jurel, flame-haired and yellow-eyed. Ghulam condescends to kiss her and remarks that it's like kissing a sword blade, and such is Gerel's defiance and will. jor then imprisoned in her own castle, but escapes. She makes contact with Father Gervais, with whom she shares her plan to travel below the castle through an ancient and otherworldly portal in search of a weapon to use against the conqueror. Gervais suggests that this act will have an irredeemable effect on her soul, but nonetheless, Jarel is prepared to make such a sacrifice for her home. The journey below the castle leads her through a portal, and from that, a spiraling, polished tunnel which to her senses has been constructed by beings other than human. There are several allusions to the wrongness of the tunnel, including its inhuman slants and angles, and its deeper atomic unsteadiness. When she arrives in the land on the other side, it's described obliquely as terrible and alien, populated by hostile creatures and strange sights. She traverses the strange meadows and the mystery valleys, shrouded in night, until she comes upon a tower in which she finds a sphere housing a creature that is the likeness of herself. Telling the being within the sphere that she desires a weapon, she is told to go to the temple by the lake. Doing as commanded, she enters the temple by the weird lake, and again, the passage over the lake is fraught, the lake being likened to a void, reflecting the vast cosmos above, and jor traversing a narrow bridge over it. Within the temple she sees a squatting statue at the centre of the many swooping art architectural lines and she's drawn to kiss the statue's iron-cold lips and takes into herself something alien beyond words, the weapon which, which she, is, she is meant to give Guillaume. She flees the land with terror at her heels and, refer, and returns to the castle. Under the pretext of acquiescing to his will, she goes to Guillaume all the while feeling that that which she carried at the core of her being was heavier than anything else in the world. Her kiss robs Guillaume of life, and probably his soul too, as the void penetrates every part of him. And at the same time as jor feels the horror of what she's done, which is essentially annihilating his very being, and she feels great remorse, but too late. The story ends with her standing over Guillaume's dead body. Now, Black God's Shadow follows directly on and deals with Jurel's guilt at the way she killed Guillaume, and also involves a repeat journey below the castle to the land, which is now in daylight and even more terrible to look at. The next story, Jurel Meets Magic, is a new tale where, in pursuit of a murderous wizard, she enters another alien world and she faces a more powerful female wizard, Gerizmo. In the Darkland, land, Jor-El lies on her deathbed after a great battle. Suddenly she's transported by magic to the land of Romne by its king Pav, who insists on her being his bride. And finally, in the last tale in Helsgard, jor is forced to enter a ruined castle Hellsgard by Guy of Garlot, who has taken her people prisoner and is using them as a bargaining chip to force us to search the, the ruined castle of Elsgård for its treasure. A treasure which he doesn't actually know what it is, but he just knows that he wants it. Past the threshold of the castle, the walls become whole and the ghostly denizens are now alive, and she has been transported back 200 years. If we look at the themes of these five tales, which are all quite short, and you could go through them quite quickly... First of all, think about them in the context of weird tales. Now, Catherine Lucille Moore was writing contemporary with Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith and Robert E. Howard. This character comes from medieval France, or not explicitly, but we assume it's a medieval France. But she touches upon many different kinds of alien worlds. And... In every case, she presents a very human perspective on the inhuman, the impossible, the um, mind-bending reality that she walks into. She describes, in a lot of cases, in in Black God's Kiss, uh, the alien land in... Almost not quite Lovecraftian language, but certainly it has that same sort of feeling. Incorrect angles and the sense of the passages being worn by uh, inhuman hands and the terrible wrongness of the land that she finds herself in. Of course, Howard's Conan, the um, whilst that is ostensibly a sword and sorcery tale, it's underpinned by the weird and the um inhuman and nihilistic. It's perhaps not surprising that Moore has placed the weird and the alien right in the centre of what is otherwise a story about a very real-feeling character uh, from uh, what we assume is our medieval France on our Earth. Certainly a God fearing character, uh, one who asks Father Gervais to shrive her before she ventures below the castle and into hell itself, as she describes it. Both Jirelle and her antagonist, though, show very human motivations. So, whereas in Lovecraftian horror we have mm-hmm. unknowable motivations of alien monsters, and that is part of the horror, in Jirelle Joyrie, all of the characters have very human traits even though they're beyond human and certainly Jorisme is beyond human as is Pav the king of the dark land but they have human failings so what we really have is both Jurel and her antagonists uh, living in a world which is superstitious and which they are still human and they have very human concerns and drives. These drives have driven them to use inhuman powers to their own ends. And these are the powers that they don't fully understand. Nevertheless, they are per- their motivations are almost completely understandable. So the next thing I want to talk about is how all the stories start in media res. Moore is wonderful at having a character jump straight into the action with a bit of backstory communicated very economically. At the start of Blackguard's Kiss, jor has been captured and we know that her place has been conquered and that drives every action that she takes from then on. In the Darkland, she has suffered a mortal blow in a battle and in Hellsguard she is once again at the mercy of somebody else who's won a, a, a victory in battle over her. There's something I think that uh, certainly for one-shot role-playing we can learn a lot about that in the implying a dramatic situation straight away, um, immediately putting the protagonist at a disadvantage and uh, giving them something to do and some wrong that they must correct, and also a path that they can take. the last thing I want to talk about is Jaelle the character herself. She is defiant and fierce, but she's also aware of her own mortality. This gives her a very three-dimensional feel to me. She's very loyal to her her homeland and her troops, and obviously she is a woman in a genre that was overwhelmingly male. Now, what can we use for games? First one is the angle of the weird. The idea of traversing into other worlds in search of power, and the idea that People become powerful magicians by claiming parts of a dream world around them, and then bringing that power into the real world, or else choosing to live in the dream realm that they've claimed and can be- that they've claimed, and can bend it to their own will. I was thinking about how Jarrell and Pav and uh, Jeresmay all appear to be human characters who have ventured into this other world and have taken some part of it back into the real world or in the case of path they've made it their home. And it's this alien otherworldly power that they have brought into the real world. And that's the, which is inhuman and horrific. And, I was also thinking about Orbeck's conquering of uh, formless chaos in uh, the, the story Earl Orbeck by Michael Moorcock. And the idea that these very human and mundane characters by force of will can enter this weird otherworldly space and shape it to their will and then take the powerful elements from it. So if I were going to make this into a role-playing game, you'd actually give the players um, some opportunity to define the otherworldly realm and what it is they've taken from that realm. And there would have to be a penalty for them taking it back into our world, uh, as well as giving the characters power. It would have to have a deleterious effect on our world. Now, it could be something... Very personal, like a demon that's being loosed into our world, and that's something I'm a theme I'm quite keen on. But it could also be something more like a contagion or an infection that uh, comes through from this other world and then takes root. The thing I'd most likely to focus on is the thresholds into other worlds, and this partly goes into thinking about sandbox play in, in OSR games, well, not just OSR games, of course, traditional games as they were, where we have a defined environment, those defined environments can have points of entry into other worlds which you can define as uh, as dream realms or other dimensions but you can also give them their own space which can be freely explored but it's it's a a linking point from your sandbox into another bounded area. I'd like to mention a game called Silent Legions by Kevin Crawford, which is kind of a—it's a modern investigative horror game, but it's uh, it's a, an OSR game and pub and the particular spin of the OSR that is the synomine games that includes um, Stars Without Number and Red Tides. Uh, and Scarlet Heroes Silent Legions does some very interesting things to do with parallel worlds and uh, with spontaneous generation of other worlds in terms of they can, which are called Kelepots, which is um, the inversion of the Sephiroth from the Kabbalistic Tree of Life I think I'm going to have to look that up but um, they are essentially other realms which can vary in size from uh, a, a pocket realm that can be uh, to a vast country-sized area, and it also has tables for generating the people and the cultures within that realm. You could easily use this kind of tool, not just in a modern horror game, but maybe in a fantasy like this, where you want to have the bulk of your game in a very real medieval France, which is concerned you know, which is possibly superstitious and aware of magic, but ultimately rooted in our world and not weird, mostly mundane and explicable, and concerned with the day-to-day life and uh, defending one's territory and either making war or making peace with one's neighbours. You've got the, I think they've got this ready-made tool where, if I wanted to simulate what the worlds that Jarell is going into. I could use uh, the ideas in Silent Legions. And indeed, Silent Legions has a number of other cool things about it. It's basically a way of generating uh, generating a, a Lovecraftian pantheon from scratch. And in that case, of course, you could make them as human or inhuman as you care to do so. So that's what I have to say about Black God's Kiss. I thoroughly recommend reading them. I think that... Uh, Uh, Recently I've been going on an appendix end kick and C.L. Moore I think is overlooked and is unfairly overshadowed by the big three being Howard Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith. Now I'm going to talk with Liz about Dragons and Warrior Daughters which is an anthology published in 1989 that includes Moore and a number of other famous authors. Hey listeners, whilst we're linking between segments, I wanted just to make a shout out for the music that we use throughout the podcast. It's by a composer, Chris Abrisky. The links to Chris's website and Bandcamp are provided in the show notes. If you like it, and I really do, because ambient music was one of my favourite genres, then go check those links out. You can listen to the MP3s for free, and you can also donate and get some high-quality FLAC or ALAC or Web files if that's what you want. Very really terrific stuff. I really like the album Stunt Island. Anyway, on with the show. Now Liz, tell me about Dragons and Warrior Daughters.
1: It's um, an anthology which calls itself Fantasy Stories by Women Writers, which was published in the um, lion's tracks imprint um, i guess in the 80s i'm just flipping through my copy to find what the publication date is yeah 89 so that's a kind of a formative and impressionable age for me um, i had a number of books from this tracks imprint um some of which i still have and some of which are um, fantasy and sci-fi related in fact there's a list in the front of this book of other they call them heroic fairy tale and science fantasy published in lions and tracks and there's some familiar names like lloyd alexander alan garner c.s lewis and so on in there yes. um, also louise lawrence who i also first discovered in here but it's dragons and warrior daughters is an anthology of uh, some short stories by some also familiar names so we've got jane yoland Tenneth lee uh, diana Wynne jones in here and c l moore who i know you haven't interested in. indeed And a few others, Um, and it was my first encounter with with most of the well, with all of these people actually, Um, and quite probably my first encounter with um, any kind of fantasy that actually features women as interesting characters, Um, and probably also my first encounter with fantasy written by women.
0: So, the anthology was dated 1989, but I know that the C.L. Moore dates, dates right the way back to 1934. Yeah. And so I assume that we've got a... and Lloyd Alexander... well, Lloyd... sorry, Lloyd Alexander isn't in that. No, part. of course not. Right, but that imprint, that would be in the 60s, of course.
1: Yeah, the um, the imprint and indeed the um, anthology do include reprints of older stories. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the great sadnesses, well, possibly the only great sadness actually about this book, that it doesn't feature an introduction. Uh-huh. So I have no idea uh, which book, which of the stories were reprinted. Uh, it seems fairly clear that some of them would have been written originally for it. The Diana and Jones, for example, it's quite likely that that was written for this because of the sort of time that it was written uh, and how that fits in with the rest of her career. Uh, but as you say, the CL Moore obviously wasn't. Uh, the, there are two stories by Pat McIntosh. Uh, she's the only one who has two stories in here. And I always thought that I'd go back and find more of her and read more of her because I really like the stories. They're two stories about the the same person. And they feel like the kind of short stories that have a chapter exerted from a longer book. Right. So it seems like there ought to be novels out there, a whole series of novels about this particular character. And there aren't. There's just one more story. She wrote three stories and that's
0: it. Oh, that, oh that's... Well, sad, but I suppose if they're that good, then she ended on a high
1: note. Yeah, it looks like they're all uh, reprinted, actually. I've just found the acknowledgements section. has acknowledgements to people who've given permission for all of them to be reprinted. But there's not, there's not an introduction talking about why this anthology came about, how these authors and these stories were selected. Uh, none of that. None of talking about how they fit into the wider genre, which I don't know if I'd have read it as a kid, but... I certainly would read it now, I think I probably would have at least skimmed it as a kid because these stories didn't fit into what I knew of the wider genre at all.
0: Uh, the, by the genre you mean fantasy? Uh, fantasy, yes. Yeah. So we're talking, and um, if we're talking about the late eighties when this was published, we would have had the Dragon Lance from Margaret Weis and Tracy Hickman. We would have had. Um, uh, David Edding's Born of Prophecy in Bulgaria then. yeah Terry Brooks the Shannara Brooks yeah and, and of course then we've got the, um, the the Tolkiens and the Moorcocks and all those that preceded it yeah all written by dudes well Dragonlance isn't that's true sorry
1: but I didn't actually read Dragonlance somehow that passed me by uh, yeah. but and I didn't read Moorcock either until much later but uh, those others the Tolkien the Eddings the Brooks the the kind of trad high fantasy stuff which was having having a bit of a boom around then. maybe Um, i read a lot of it because my dad read it and it was in the house Mm. but i read everything i could get my hands on and dragons and warrior daughters i first got from the library um, along with lots of other books as i said from this imprint Um, and most of them certainly most of the ones that wanted me to feel that as a girl they were directed at me were much more realist, much more about kind of the problems of teenagers, that kind of thing. Some of them were a bit like what we might call magic realism these days, but mostly not.
0: This is what the burgeoning YA genre, before it was called called and marketed as YA. Yeah, I think so. And so um, Margaret May is a contemporary of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I read T.J. from around the same sort of time that I read Dragons and Warrior Daughters, and it was similarly impactful on me.
0: But the other ones would be, uh, what, is it Paul Danzinger? Paula. Sorry, Paula Danzinger, pardon me, and uh, Judy Blue. Yep, very much
1: realist. Um, Comedy also in some cases, but about, about the real lives of kids.
0: But that's typically the real lives of kids, but I assume these were... The YA, as it was then, marketed towards young women. Yes. So um, this, so this stands out because it is, uh, you know, from the fantasy heroic genre, uh, but it is, you know, female protagonists and female authors.
1: Uh, mostly female protagonists. There's actually the Lee story, um, throws me every time I read it because um, it has a first person narrator about whom we know almost nothing until really quite late. And because it's in the context of this book where all of the other stories have female narrators or female protagonists, um, and the book uh, talks about um, girls and women feature as warriors, healers, or simply as strong, independent people, and boys and men are heroic in unexpected ways. That's from the blurb. So this unnamed protagonist of the Tanith Lee story, uh, I read it assuming that the protagonist is a woman. And it's only towards the end of the story that we get somebody else using a pronoun for him and it turns out that it's a man and it completely throws me out of the story.
0: That's interesting.
1: But other than that, um, the protagonists are all women and they're all interesting. Some of them are full-fledged knights with armour fighting battles, um, either all the time or some of the time. Um, Some of them are just the somewhat more commonplace, interesting, resourceful characters. So we're saying that that this
0: was uncommon for the time? Certainly for my experience at the time, yeah, definitely. For this genre? Yeah. There there are, as you said, other examples in other genres of female writers writing about female protagonists, etc., etc. Is there a modern equivalent of this, which was an anthology from 1989? I actually went
1: looking for... Some kind of modern equivalent when we were first talking about doing this podcast, mm. and failed to find anything. Um, there doesn't seem to be anything since that's a female-focused fantasy anthology aimed at the YA audience. Um, there's a fair bit of feminist SF, as you know, because I've got some of it on my shelves.
0: Yeah, it's the women's library, is it? Uh, as the women's press. Sorry, the women's press. Um, although
1: you. that was. Uh, Possibly roughly um, contemporary with this, but yeah. aimed at women and SF rather than girls and fantasy.
0: But more broadly, the sort of feminist and, and, and women's fantasy where talking about Le Guin and... Uh, is that what you mean? Um, no, I'm not sure I would count... Well, so I've
1: only just read um, The Wizard of Earthsea and oh, yeah. uh, Tombs of Atuan, which I guess are, if not all, her... Le Guin's substantial contribution to kids' fantasy. Um, and although Tombs of Atuan would fit very neatly in With Dragons of Warrior Daughters, Wizard of Earth he very much would not. In fact, the two are interesting as a pair for that reason, having read them around the time I was rereading bits of this.
0: And Tombs of Atuan is by far the superior story. Well, yes, obviously. Um,
1: but yeah, I think, I think there are now more effectively more novels of the kinds of things that are in these stories. Uh, but still probably not all that much aimed at the YA audience. Uh, but I don't read a lot of fantasy these days, so I'm not so attuned with it.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, of course, one of uh, my touchstones for fantasy is Sabriel, but that's written by a guy, even yeah. with a female protagonist. So it doesn't count. And Half counts, maybe. Well, yes, and and I love Sabriel because of uh, because of the way it's structured and the way that you know, the the character. But um, I guess if you want to, if you if you want to raise the profile of female authors in the YA space, there's not a lot of fantasy. Plenty of. Um, Dystopian fiction, yes, very much so. Yeah, and we've got uh, what Veronica Roster-Virgin, We've got um These Collins, of course. Exactly, yeah, uh, and many other similar. Uh, and that's kind of a tradition that has um, that's persisted from around and um, probably before the time of this to the present day, because we've we've had post Holocaust and yeah. dystopian fiction of that kind.
1: Yeah, uh, there was there was a fair bit of it around around the late late 80s as well although it hadn't quite coalesced and codified in the way that it has now
0: yeah. um,
1: but I don't think it's just about promoting women authors although obviously I do think that that's important and I think sabriella is important in the same sort of way that for example the Tiffany Aching books are that actually it's perfectly possible for men to write good women as it is possible for women to write good men because humans are just humans and having people successfully doing that Helps to break down some of those barriers.
0: I've I've heard part of the objection to writing female leads is that women girls will read the women and men yes. as leads, but boys won't lead, read women as leads. Yes,
1: as these. if it's some kind of biological determinism that boys are just born with the inability to identify with women in their blood.
0: Well, which is I, clearly nonsense. I think I, I think it's a very strange thing if somebody has actually said that.
1: People do say that.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's um, fairly commonplace in um, YA marketing conversations. Right. um, Which I'm not personally privy to, but I kind of pick up bits around the edges from from friends and from colleagues and so on. Mm. But yeah, it's because we we focus so much of our, um, I guess, our media content, TV and books and everything, on... Boys as protagonists, that girls have to cope with that, and boys never, never get encouraged to deal with girls as
0: protagonists
1: because they don't have to. Because there are so many boys.
0: And I suppose you've got the the inertia that you, that a lot of the things that boys can get their hands on are boys anyway. Yeah. And so even if there were more girls in uh, the positions of knights and heroic characters, they would still be more fantasy written with male protagonists.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we also have, sort of, parallel with that, the the persistent idea that girls will just read anyway and boys don't read.
0: And you need to encourage them to
1: read. Because obviously you don't read, right, for a boy? Well, I'm not very
0: well, no. <laughs> no, I can just about manage the Julia Donaldson. <laughs>
1: well, be careful, that's a female author.
0: And... Room of the Broom has a female protagonist. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, and the snail and the whale, the snail's female. Really? I'm shocked. Well, yeah, so was I. Because I, I went right the way through thinking it was a male snail until I, until I got a female, <laughs> female protagonist. Oh, no, there's a female pronoun in the first, first verse. So, anyway. But
1: all the characters of the Gruffalo are male, and I'm constantly tempted to print off pronoun really? stickers. But I thought...
0: I thought one of them
1: the Gruffalo's child is female but in the Gruffalo they're all male okay so I tend to read it with the snake and the owl being female probably good then at some point I will make stickers and stick them over the words okay
0: we're getting very off topic well just a bit yeah do you have any recommendations for the listeners for authors the listeners should seek out if they're after this genre of fiction um, which obviously, if we're saying that there isn't much of it, well, you. I think
1: there's a lot more now. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, who would you recommend?
1: Uh, writing now, um, I guess Frances Harding is an obvious one to recommend. Yeah, she doesn't write this kind of heroic fantasy stuff exactly, although it's good, sort of adjacent to that. But
0: definitely, um, definitely, uh, Fly by Night and uh, Yeah, Twilight Robbery.
1: Yeah, and. Uh, I think they've all got interesting female protagonists, and uh, so yeah, definitely Frances, uh, Diana Jones, of course, who's in this anthology, uh, and much of her stuff is excellent and has female. Pro- doesn't all have female protagonists, but they've all got interesting female characters in them. Mm. Um, Kenneth Lee again is in this anthology, although I find her a bit hit and miss.
0: That's fair.
1: Yeah, uh, well, we've talked about her before, of course. Indeed, yeah. Um, Deborah Pierce writes um, a lot of this kind of um, fairly traditional fantasy with
0: um, with lots of female characters. Defender of the Small was one of hers, I think. I don't know. I got that right. I'm, Possibly. I, I may I may have that completely wrong, but that's one I, I have read.
1: It doesn't ring a bell, but I haven't read all of her stuff by a long shot. Um, Less YA. Well, I mentioned Tana she's not YA at all, really. Um, but Rosemary Kirstein, who wrote the Steerswoman series. Yes, that's, uh, co-
0: that's contemporary, right? It's
1: more... Yeah, sorry. She, she... <laughs> it's not contemporary, no. It's... No, it's, it's... A
0: fantasy, not
1: fantasy, but... Fantasy-ish. Uh, but it's being written now that she's written four books and she's working on number five at the moment, I think. Right. Um, but they... A short story drawn from that world would fit beautifully in Dragons and Warrior Daughters Uh and an author who's writing at the moment but going back to her very earliest work Jo Walton her first published books um, are a reimagining of the Arthurian myth in a somewhat different world which is much more uh, has much more gender equality and has some interesting things around that I mean it's still all about Arthur obviously but the Arthurian stories are completely riddled with interesting female characters uh, if you take even the slightest interest in looking for them. Uh, And Jo Walton brings that out. And also, uh, she also has heaps of female knights in the kind of way that some of the stories in Dragons and Warrior Daughters do. So that's all good fun. I like female knights. I'm a fan of them.
0: Excellent. Um,
1: Which actually, I think, I mean, we haven't talked about role playing at all, but I think female knights is kind of part of what this anthology-related things has to say to role playing. That's kind of a a reminder that even if even if you're pursuing the kind of role playing where you're very keen on having uh, pure historical accuracy, and as you know, I don't think a lot of that anyway. Um, there's still always scope to to drop in a woman in armour somewhere because the people you're role-playing about are, by definition, uh, extraordinary people, and there were women in armour. These stories, even the ones that are set in otherwise patriarchal sexist kind of societies, somehow managed to produce it, so there's no excuse for our role-playing
0: games. Yeah, I mean, there's one, one the uh, the argument that it's historical accuracy is nonsense when we're talking about a fiction and a fantasy yes uh, two as you just said these are exceptional people three there are known cases of female warriors absolutely there's a um there's an anecdote in um terry brown's book english martial arts yeah. of a woman who was a master of the quarterstaff and Beat the crap out of uh, one. Of, she she kept an in, I believe, and she beat the crap out of one of her patrons who was uh, made some some comments about her ability. Excellent. Oh. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's great. There's, in fact, the that that book. Okay, so that's not fiction at all. That's got some really great anecdotes about English people with water beating up other people. We should with, totally talk about that for Fixed Plaza. that. What, non-victoplasm. Non-victoplasm. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a different thing. But but yes, it's it's um, one of the things now, of course, the CL Moore, the the Black God's Kiss. Yeah. Which I think, am I right in saying that's your least favourite story? That
1: is my least favourite story. It's the yeah. one I don't tend to reread.
0: That's fair enough. Um, and But it, it blew me away. In fact, the, the, the five in the collection I've got, Gerardo Drury... Yeah. Uh, just blew me away completely but I love jor she is such a fantastic character she is a great character it's um, true in that she is defiant but she is also um, fiercely protective of both her land and the people who serve under her so uh, she has um, she has a strong sense of that the 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 men who fight for her she is responsible for their lives which I think is a is you know, speaks a lot about the character, yeah. and she's also very aware of her own mortality. And so you compare this to, you know, the contemporary characters like Conan. Now Conan isn't just this mighty thewed muscle barbarian, but doesn't seem to have nearly as much depth as this particular yeah. character.
1: Yeah, I mean, Joelle is completely plausible as a a character in the real world medieval France who is responsible for her castle her domain and also because she's forced to puts on armour and goes off to fight yeah uh, you, I don't find that at all unconvi- I mean obviously I'm not a medieval French historian but from the lay person's position uh, the way she's written is entirely convincing yeah I mean I don't like the stories but I do like the character
0: that's fair enough
1: maybe I should go and look for some fanfic about her <laughs> Same character with different stories. That would be better.
0: All right, Liz. Thanks so much for talking about it. And You're welcome. Thank you, listeners, for listening to our podcast. And that's it for this time. Cheerio. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you've got comments, we'd love to hear them. We're on the web and on social media. Details at victorplasm.net. Until next time, bye.